Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it really is a difficult book, Second uh, Peter. There are some difficult passages here, some strong warnings here, and, and today's text is no exception. And, and Lord, I, I just ask today that uh, uh, you use these verses to, to do two things, to show us that the dangers of uh, not truly being born again, the dangers of teaching false doctrine, but also, Lord, the security that we have in Jesus Christ. And we can see all of that in this text. And uh, I just ask that uh, you uh, help us to learn these lessons here. And I ask you to do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, we do pray, pray for those in our community that have been flooded. Uh, Lord, we are here to help. Uh, we ask for your, uh, to make any divine appointment that needs to be made. Uh, uh, to help us to, to be able to uh, facilitate any help that's needed in, in this community. So we just ask for your grace in that situation, Lord. We thank you for what you're doing uh, even now uh, as we pray. And we, we again, we ask you to bless our study today. We ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. Okay, if you have your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, again, raise your hand. We've got some Bibles in here now. Anybody that needs a Bible? We need one up here. Okay, everybody have Bibles. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of 2 Peter, head towards Revelation, almost to the end of the Bible, and you'll find the little book of 2 Peter, and we'll be picking up in chapter number 2, uh, verse number 17, here in just a second. You know, last month, Brenda and I decided to go see my dad in Birmingham, and so we got on the motorcycle, and, and we rode over to Birmingham, and when we left here, it was a beautiful day. I mean, I know you don't believe that because we had not seen many beautiful days lately, but it was an absolutely gorgeous day, blue skies. And we got on the bike and we headed towards uh, uh, Hattiesburg and we were going to stop stay the night there. And as we came into Baton Rouge, I saw this one sort of foreboding, foreboding cloud. This, this, it wasn't even the black cloud, but it was a little bit gray cloud. It wasn't that big of a cloud and it looked like we might be passing under that cloud. So I was trying to decide did I want to put the rain gear on or not. And, and I said, you know, there's no rain in that cloud. And so we're not going to get wet. So I didn't put the rain gear on and I rode under the cloud. And sure enough, I mean, it, a downpour came and we got absolutely soaked. You know, since I've been in Louisiana, I, I've been here 12 years now. But it, actually, I went to seminary and was there and uh, pastored in New Orleans for nine years. So I've been here over 20 years. And what amazes me in Louisiana is how one cloud can dump so much rain. I mean, these clouds are full of rain. You know, that's not the way it is. When I lived out west, it wasn't like that. When I lived in Arizona, man, you would see these big, dark clouds roll in, and you might even hear some, some thunder and see some lightning, and, you'd, and all these clouds would roll over, and you wouldn't get a drop of rain. I mean, you wouldn't get a drop of rain because they were clouds without rain. Peter's going to talk to us today about teachers who are clouds without rain. Pick up with me in verse number 17. He says, these are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved, watch this now, I didn't say this, Peter said this, the blackness of darkness forever. Wow, that sounds pretty tough, doesn't it? You know, something else I noticed when I was out west, we used to ride our Jeep out into the desert, 
and you would see a lot of these abandoned wells. Well, the reason they were abandoned were two reasons. One was that they didn't have any water in them. The second reason was that the water that was in them was bad. It was poison. And so uh, teachers, some teachers are like that. They're wells without water. When, when we see water in the Bible, what is it usually referring to? I mean, it's referring to the Bible itself, isn't it? Water in the Bible is usually symbolic of the pure word of God. And without the pure word of God, you can never quench your spiritual thirst. And there are these so-called teachers that are nothing more than empty wells. And they base their teaching upon their own experiences or upon their secular knowledge of philosophy or psychology. And when they preach, they offer you nothing they, they have no water to give you because where do we get the water? We get the water from the well of this world. I mean, of this word, when, not the world, of this word. When I, when I was in seminary, I took a seminar on the great preachers of the 20th century, and there was a particular student in, a, in our seminar that did a paper on an English preacher from the mid-20th century. And he did, this particular preacher was a chaplain during World War II. And in his paper, he talked about how this preacher, when he would visit soldiers who were dying in, in the, the, the military hospitals, he would visit them and he would read them poetry. And then before these soldiers went off to battle, he would read them poetry. And, and it was, the, the poems that he wrote were things like Tennyson and they were things that had a godly base but I remember raising my hand and I said, you know what? And I, I think I kind of got the student mad, but I wasn't picking on him. I was just making a point. I said, you know, if I was about to go to battle and risk my life, if I was in a hospital about to die, I wouldn't want to hear poetry. What I would want to hear is the unadulterated word of God because that is the only thing that can quench a spiritual thirst. And just about as bad as wells without water or wells with, maybe they're worse, wells with poison water. Now, most Christian teachers, they call themselves Christians, they preach from the word of God. But some of them preach poison. And the reason they poison the water is because they take verses, a verse like we're going to look at today, one of the verses they take out of context, they take verses out of context and in doing so, they take it out of context so that they can back up their poison theology. And, and uh, so instead of giving listeners nourishing water to drink, they're actually giving them poison. You know, you can take the Bible and you can take verses out of context and you can get the Bible to say anything that you want the Bible to say. Then he says, look at the... Next part of that verse, verse number 17, he says, these, these are like wells without water. They're like clouds carried by a tempest. What's a tempest? A tempest is a violent storm. And it's kind of like those clouds that you would see in Arizona. They would come off the coast in California, and they would have lots of rain in them, and they would dump that rain in California. And then they would carry on, and they would get away from the center of the storm because the winds would push them out west and they would come over Arizona, and then they wouldn't have any rain with them. Well, see, that's kind of like some false teachers. They, they get away from the center, and who's the center? The center is Jesus Christ and his word. That's, that's the center. 
and they get away from that center, and so their clouds carried by a storm, but they don't have any rain. They, they're pretty bombastic, and, and they, they, they say fancy words, but, but they, and they look like the real thing, but they don't have any rain. I, I, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not picking on anybody, and I'm not calling any names, but I believe in the United States of America today, we have a lot of wells without water and a lot of clouds without rain. You know, most false teachers don't have any water to give you and they don't have any rain to give you. In the, in the Bible, what's rain symbolic of? It's symbolic of the Holy Spirit. It's sim- when, when you talk of water you speak of the word when you talk of rain you're talking about the rain of the holy spirit and so some of these teachers do teach the bible but they teach it without any anointing i want to be real careful here and i don't want to sound prideful here like somehow i have the anointing and they don't but i gotta tell you if you've ever preached if you've ever spoken in the power of god you know whether or not you have the anointing i gotta confess to you there's times when I don't have the anointing. There's times when you don't have the anointing. You know, for this to work, here's what has to happen. My words have to be anointed, and your ears have to be anointed. There's days I come in here, man, I feel like I'm really anointed. And I look at you, and you don't seem so anointed. (laughs) And there's days like last week when y'all seem really anointed, and man, I felt like I was dead. You ought to be, you can probably notice it when I, when I start dropping things and panicking and my tongue sticks to my mouth, there's no anointing. So when, you, when that happens, you can, you can bet on it, and that is the worst feeling in the world. I remember Adrian Rogers, who was one of my favorite preachers, and man, you talk about a man with anointing. He had the anointing, but I remember him saying he would rather die than to get into the pulpit without an anointing. Because when you get in the pulpit without an anointing, then it's dead. It's as if God has deserted you. It's as if you're a cloud without rain. And it's the same thing for y'all. If you come to church and there's no anointing, if you're not hearing this, if your ears aren't open, it's, not, it, it's going to be boring to you. It's not going to be any good to you. So let me suggest to you something before you come here. Pray that God opens your ears with an anointing. Pray that for sure for me that he anoints what I say or you're going you're to get really bored because we do this a long time, you know, and, <laughs> and it would be really bad if there's no anointing. I, you know, if you're a, a true teacher of God, most of the time you are going to have the anointing. If you're a real children of God, most of the time you're going to have the anointing. Not always, but most of the time you are. But a false teacher never has the anointing. But here's the problem. I think some of the most charismatic men in the pulpit in America today are false teachers. I'm not going to name names. But I know their doctrine is poison. I can show you where their doctrine is poison if I were to name names. But they're charismatic people. They're funny people. They're clever people. And they have the ability to easily fool an unstable soul. And so, so they're, they're packing out their churches with unstable souls. But man, I wouldn't want to be on their sh- in their shoes for anything because I want you to read the last part of verse number 17. For whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. 
They've got reservations. Not in Hawaii. They've got reservation in a place where it's black. Man, when you talk about the blackness of darkness, that's getting really black, isn't it? How long are the reservations for? A couple of weeks? A couple of years? A couple of millennium? Forever. And ever. Don't tell me the Bible doesn't speak of hell. That's exactly what Peter's speaking of right here. Hell is a kind of a paradoxical place because it's a place of fire, but it's also a place of utter darkness because God is totally absent. And who is light? God is light. And so this is a terrible place. Well, I don't believe in hell. Let me, I got news for you. It doesn't matter whether you believe in it or not. It really does matter because you better believe in it. But, but you're, you know, if you're born again, you're not going there. You don't have to worry about it. But just when people say, I don't believe in hell, God is a God of love, and God is never going to punish people in hell. Well, I'm reading from this. I didn't make this up. Peter says that for, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness, and not for a few years, not one time, but forever. Man, pastor, you're, you're, you're being awful harsh here. I mean, you're really being harsh. I mean, is it me being harsh? It's Peter being harsh. I believe this Bible is inspired or I wouldn't even be up here teaching it. And so who's being harsh today? It's God who's being harsh. He's being harsh. I was looking at a commentary by Stephen Cole on the book of 2 Peter because I, I, got, I get into this and I feel I'm being too harsh sometimes too because this book is, this book is pretty harsh. And I read the introduction to his commentary last week and he said, that he got more negative emails and telephone calls when he preached through 2 Peter than when he preached through any other book. He said people were saying, Pastor, you're too harsh. You're too blunt. You're too dogmatic. You're too judgmental. You're going to run people off. I mean, I'm afraid of that. I hope I don't run any of y'all off with this stuff, but it's, I mean, it is in the Word. And Peter says some tough things in this book. I mean, let, let me review a few of them for you. Go back to chapter 1, verse 10. He says, therefore, brethren, if you call yourself brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. In other words, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Make sure you're saved. Because if you're not, you've got some bad reservations made for you. Look at verse, look at verse number 1 of chapter 2. He says, there are false prophets among the people. Look at the last part of that verse. And they bring on themselves swift destruction. Verse number 3, uh, their judgment, let me read the whole verse. By covetous they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle. Their destruction does not slumber. Pretty harsh, isn't it? Look at verse number four. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned and cast them down into hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And that word hell is Tartarus there. I'm not going to go back in there. But that's Tartarus is a very scary place, it's, which is hell. Then verse number nine. And then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and reserve the unjust. If you're not godly, that means you're unjust, under punishment for the day of judgment. Then look at verse number 12. But these are like natural brute beasts made to be caught. And look at the last part. Then they will utterly perish in their own corruption. 
Verse number three, and they will receive the wages of unrighteousness. Verse number 17, the one we're looking at, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Verse number 20, for if they had escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled in them and have overcome the latter, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. That's harsh. Look at verse number seven. It gets even better or harsher, or worse, however you want to look at it. But the heavens and the earth which are now, uh, chapter 3, verse number 7. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition, destruction of ungodly men. And in verse number 10, for the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. Man, that sounds like an Old Testament God to me, not a New Testament God. Well, I got news for you. It's the same God. And, and I, I, I got to say this. The word of God is all about grace. It's all about salvation. It's not about judgment. Why does God want to scare us in this book? Because there are great promises in the word of God. There's a promise of a future and a hope. But you'll never experience that hope if you're not truly born again. And if you are not truly born again and you stand up in a pulpit and preach poison, you're going to end up in the darkest, uttermost part of hell. That's the warning there. And it is. It's pretty scary stuff. But the same Bible that has John 3.16 in it and Romans 8.28, for all things work together for the good of the Lord, it has these passages in it too. So hang with me. Chapter 2, verse 18. For when they speak swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh. Watch a pastor that tickles your ear that allures to the lust of the flesh. A pastor that promised health, wealth, and prosperity. You better watch out for that pastor. You know what? I read Psalms 105 yesterday, and it says that God delights in the prosperity of his children. I believe that with all my heart. But he also says in this world you will have many trials. Many trials. So there's got to be a balance. And when, when a pastor doesn't do anything but teach health, wealth, and prosperity, they're poisoning you by leaving out the rest of the word. And these guys are showmen. They speak great swelling words of emptiness. There's no water there. There's nothing there to quench your spiritual thirst. There's nothing there to help you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And they actually make the person who they are preaching to more of the son of a hell than they were before they met this particular person, before they heard this particular person. And while they promise, verse number 19, they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. Well, I'll tell you what, there's people that really abuse the liberty we have in Jesus Christ. A Christian doesn't. I'll tell you why I know a Christian doesn't, because God's got a really nice thick belt and when you abuse the freedom and liberty he gives you he's going to get you back in line real quick if you can sit and live in sin 
and cheat and lie and steal day after day after day after day, year after year after year after year. You're not a child of God. I don't believe you're a child of God. I don't believe you can get away with it as a child of God. I can't get away with it. And you're no more special than I am, so, so if I can't get away with it, you're not going to get away with it. Just like I used to tell my dad, if, he, if, I, if I can't get away with it, my brothers can't get away with it. I'll say the same thing about you. If I can't get away with it, Lord, don't you let them get away with it. He's not going to let you get away with it because he loves you. Look, there's a lot of liberty in Jesus Christ. You remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. If the Son shall be, make you free, you shall be free indeed. You're absolutely free in Jesus Christ. I'm going to say it again. Spurgeon said it. Let me quote Spurgeon so you don't think it's just coming from me. You are free to do anything you want to do. But if you're born again, what you want to do is to lead a pure and holy life. And if you want to live like a pig, you're not born again. If you want to live like a pagan, you're not born again. Then he comes in verse number 20 to maybe one of the scariest verses in the Bible. And he says, for if they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord, they know about the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled back in the pollutions of the world and overcome, the latter end for these people is worse for them than the beginning. Man. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like to me, you can lose your salvation. That's exactly what it sounds like. And this passage is the favorite passage of people who believe you can lose your salvation. And there's a big warning here. And I can see why it's the favorite passage. It's pretty scary. But I don't believe that's what it teaches. I don't believe that's what it teaches at all. And, and here's your danger. If you take this verse and you try to make a doctrine for Arminianism, a doctrine for the belief that you can lose your salvation, let me tell you what you're doing. You're doing what false teachers are doing. You're taking this passage out of context. We've got to look at the whole context of this passage before we can make that decision. Now, granted, it looks to me like you can lose your salvation. I don't believe you can. You all know that by now. You've been here long enough. I believe in eternal security. And let me say this before we get started. If you don't believe in eternal security, I still love you and you can still love me. Don't leave the church. Don't get mad at me. Because I believe what Chuck Smith said is true. In the end, it doesn't really matter whether you believe that person was saved and lost their salvation or that person never was saved. If they end up in hell, they end up in hell. And our job is to keep them out of hell, right? So, so that's our job. But here's when, when I first got saved, I came to the Bible with a blank slate. I didn't come as a Calvinist. Calvinist believes you can't lose your salvation. I didn't come as an Armenian. They believe you can't lose your salvation. I came to the Bible with a blank slate. I didn't know what Arminianism was or what Calvinism was or what eternal security meant. I didn't know what any of those things meant. And for 27 years, I've studied this Bible. Some of you have studied it more. But for 27 years, I've studied this Bible with an open mind and I, 
I've looked at the Bible, and I've come to the conclusion that we are eternally secure. Thank God I'm eternally secure. You might not need that, but I need it really bad. Look, in the last 27 years, I would have got up and left this stuff a long time ago. If, but God's brought me back. Because it's God who is able to keep me. He's the one who's kept me. But, but hang in with me. If you don't believe in eternal security, you don't, and you don't believe it when we're done, we're still going to be friends. Well, I'm not going to like you much, but we're going to be friends. No. <laughs> but let's dissect this passage. Let me tell you what. When you're done with this, I think you'll see you can't use this passage to prove that we're not eternally secure. Because that's not what Peter's saying at all. Let's di dissect this, the, the passage. First of all, you've got to figure out who the they is. You can't just take that out of context. Whenever you have a pronoun, like the they, what does it refer to? It refers to the person or persons in the immediate context. Who was the last person or persons that Peter was referring to there? He was referring to those people. We've got to go back to verse 90, 19. He's referring to those people who are deceived by false teachers, who have been overcome and brought into bondage by false teachers. So he's referring to those people who have heard a false gospel because they've heard it from false teachers. Now, now you can't deny that if you know anything about English. You, how many agree with what I just said? Raise your hand whether you agree or not. All right, now. Where was I going to head with this? All right. They've gotten their gospel from a false teacher. You know what? There are a lot of false teachers out there that give a false gospel. There are good teachers that give a false gospel. There are a lot of good teachers that give a false gospel. If I tell you today, you say a sinner's prayer with me and you're, you're born again, that's a false gospel. If I tell you today you walk down that aisle as soon as the service is over in front of all of these people and tell them that you're saved, that's a false gospel. Jesse's catching on. If I tell you, you, let's pray, and now you raise your hand and you're born again, that's a false gospel. You know, again, I like what Spurgeon said. A great book to read, by the way, by Spurgeon is All of Grace. But Spurgeon put it like this. He said, it's not walking down the aisle that saves you. It's not raising your hand that saves you. It's not sinning, uh, saying the sinner's prayer that saves you. It's not even your faith that saves you. The blood of Jesus Christ is what saves you. And until you put your entire trust in that blood, you will not be born again. You can walk down this aisle and dance down this aisle and do cartwheels down this aisle and that will not save you. Now if that's if you've done that and you do cartwheels down this aisle, say hallelujah, come on down. Do it right now. We'll, we'll enjoy watching it. <laughs> but we're saved. We're not saved by anything we do. What we do is not the sacrament. Who made the sacrament? Jesus Christ made the sacrament. So churches are full of people. 
If, if you were to talk to Billy Graham, Billy Graham would tell you that of all those people that came forward, maybe 1%, out of all those millions of people that came forward at his crusade, maybe 1% of them were truly born again, truly got saved. And the ones that got saved heard his word, and he didn't teach a false word. Don't get me wrong at all. And, and I never heard him say, if you'll come down here, that's what will save you. I never heard him say that either. But what saved them was they believed the word and then they publicly confessed that by coming forward. That's a good thing. Our public confession is our baptism. But we have churches full of people who have walked out an aisle, they've raised their hand when they were little kids, they, they've said, they, they've maybe even been baptized. They've said a sinner's prayer, but they've never been born again. Jesus said... Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say unless you walk down an aisle or unless you raise your hand or unless you say a sinner's prayer. Unless you are born again. And how are you born again? You are born again by the Spirit of God when you believe. Having believed, Paul says in Ephesians, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Having believed, you are born again. Now, it looks like they've lost their salvation, but they never were truly born again. They never were clouds or wells with water. They never became wells with water. They never truly absorbed the word of God. What's the water? The word of God. Jesus spoke of such people in a, the parable of the sower. Remember what he said in Matthew chapter 13? He said that there are people that, that, uh, that uh, the, the word never takes root. It never takes root in them. And so when persecution and trials come, they fall away. When the evil one comes, he snatches the word that they have and, and, and they fall away. Or the, or the cares of this world choke out the word and they fall away. But they were never truly born again. They're also, they're clouds without rain. They don't have the Spirit of God in them. They've never truly been sealed with the Spirit of God. Now I want you to think about something. Why did God choose the metaphor of sealing with the Spirit to mark a true believer? Why did he do that? Well, anybody in that culture knew exactly why he did that. Because when a king took his seal and he sealed a decree, what did that mean? That meant that that decree was irreversible. Irreversible. It could never be reversed. So when God sealed you with his Holy Spirit, it can never be reversed. Now let me ask you a question. If you believe people can walk away once they're sealed, then... You're saying they get born again and then they get unborn again. Let, let me ask you a question. If, if God is omniscient and he knows everything, and he knows your thoughts, he knows your heart, and he knows if you've truly received him as your savior, if he knows that, he's going to give you his spirit. If he doesn't, if he knows you're never going to believe, is he going to seal you with his spirit? No, because when he seals you with the Spirit, that decree is irreversible. Well, wait a minute, Pastor, you've got to look at this verse. I mean, you've got to look at this verse. I mean, it, 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 doesn't it say that, that after they've ex 
escape from the pollutions of the world and, and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ are getting tangled in the world again and the, the latter end is worse than the beginning. Isn't it saying that they're, they're, they're losing their salvation? Isn't that exactly what it's saying? No, it's not saying that at all. It's speaking of they, they who have been tricked by these false teachers and aren't truly born again. And they're tangled back in the pollutions of this world. And I've got to tell you, it's really bad for them when that happens. Because look at verse number 21. It says, for it would have been better for them if they had not known the way of righteousness than having known the way of righteousness, than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. What's the way? What is the way of righteousness? Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. What's the holy commandment? The holy commandment is that you, that you believe in the way, that you put your entire trust in the way totally for your salvation. And just knowing the way doesn't save you. The demons know the way. The only way you can get saved is when you, when you know the way and you believe the way, you put your trust in the way. Man, half of America, more than half of America know about the gospel they know the way, but they haven't put their trust in the way. And having believed, Paul says, having really put your trust in the way, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, that's still it's a scary passage because it says, I mean, it will be worse off for them. It would, for, it would have been far better for them to not have known the way than to turn from the way. Why is that? Because here's why. The Bible's clear that the more responsibility you have, I mean, the more knowledge you have, the more responsibility you have to believe that knowledge. And the greater degree of punishment for those who know the way and then reject the way. I mean, remember how Jesus rebuked those cities where they had seen him and they had rejected him? He said, it will be worse for you in that day than, than for Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it was pretty bad for Sodom and Gomorrah. How could it get worse? There are degrees of punishment, and the more, more you're exposed to this and the more you reject it, the greater the degree of punishment. That's what the Bible teaches. The second reason is that if you keep hearing this gospel over and over and over again and you keep rejecting it, you are callousing your soul. And at some point, you're going to reach a point where you can't be saved. Man, pastor, give us some good news. That's pretty scary. Man, you're, are you sure he's not warning us about born-again believers here, you know, who walk away and go back to the world? I'm absolutely positive that's not who he's talking about. Let me show you how I can prove that. Go with me to the next verse. But it has happened to them. Who's the them? Let's look at our pronoun. To those who were deceived by the teachers, false teachers, and went the wrong way. They never received the true way. That's the them. And here's how it happened to them according to the true problem. A dog returns to his own vomit. And a sow having washed in her wallowing returns to the mire. Why does a dog 
return to his vomit and lick up his vomit. Our, our, we had a dog. Y'all remember our dog, Jill? Big, heavy set, white lab. She ate anything, carrots, broccoli, crawfish heads, anything. I told you the story about how we chased the rats out of the barbecue grill, and one by one there was a nest of rats in our barbecue grill that had built up over the winter, and I went to use it, and there were all these rats. One by one, as they come out of, came out of the grill, she would, I'm, get ready for this, if you're eating lunch, you might want to wait about an hour after this. <laughs> and one by one, these rats would come out of the grill, and she would, Eat those rats up. She ate six rats. Six rats. Then she came into our house and vomited up the rats. And there were rat heads and tails. I said, Brenda, you got to clean this up. <laughs> Why did Jill do that? I wouldn't do that. Why did Jill do that? Because she's a dog, and that's what dogs do. You seen the commercial with the pirate and the parrot? And the parrot's telling all the pirates, man, all the bad things he said about them. I mean, he told them that they were, he was going to take all of the gold. They were a bunch of morons, and they stink. And the narrator says, why did the parrot do that? Because that's what parrots do. They repeat things. That's what dogs do. They lick up vomit. That's what pigs do. You wash a pig all up and, and then get them all clean. And where are they going to head? Right back to the pigsty. Because why do they do that? Because that's what pigs do. You see the point Peter's making right here? That's what unbelievers do. They, because they really haven't been changed by the gospel. So they return to the vomit of this world. Things we would never think about doing, they go back to that. They return to the mire of this world. And they do it because they're pagans. And that's what pagans do. That's harsh. Peter isn't saying that. God isn't saying that because he wants to see people in hell. God is saying that because he wants people to live forever with him. He wants them saved. See, this passage is only harsh and scary if you're a fake. If you're hanging out in, in some church and you're playing religion and, and you've never been changed by the, by the gospel and by the word and by the spirit. And, and, and if, if that's the case, listen to me very carefully. You're in grave danger. You're in very grave danger. A boy we coached. Uh, I coached in baseball, and Nathan played with in baseball. was just on the side of the road fixing his car that had broken down, and he got hit and killed. 23, 24-year-old boy this past couple, of, a week ago. I, the good news is, the good news is, what we heard was that he was carrying a Bible in his backpack. And he had been asking his uh Aunt, I believe is where the story goes, to, to tell him more about the Lord. He was seeking out the Lord, and you know what? i got to believe he found him in those last days. But hey, if, if, if you're not changed, you've got reservations in a place of blackness and utter darkness. It's reserved for you, but you can change those reservations. 
it's real easy to change. Man, they, they had a big place for me down there. Really dark place. But I changed my reservations. I didn't change them. God changed them. God saved me. He'll save you. If he can save me, he can save you. And all you got to do is believe. Put your faith and trust not in yourself, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. You got to want that. You got to want the Lord. You got to want heaven. If you want the world, you'll keep the world. But listen to me. If you're truly born again and you've been changed, hey, you're no longer a dog. You're not going to be licking up the vomit of this world. You're not going to be going back. You're not a pig. You're not going to go back to the pigsty. I mean, you're a child of God. And how did we become a child of God? God gave us a new nature, a pure and holy nature. And he's given you a hunger for his word, and now you feed on his word, and so you're a well with water. You've been baptized in the Spirit, and so now you're, you're, full of, you're a cloud full of rain. And I got news for you. God's going to keep it that way because he who began a good work in you, he will complete it till the end. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the, the good news, the good news that if we have given our lives to you and we are truly born again, Lord, that you have sealed us with your Spirit and we're no longer dogs, we're no longer pigs, we are children, your children, Lord, children of God. Father, we just thank you for that great news, and Lord, if there's someone here who has reservations in hell right now, Lord, let today be the day they change those reservations, that they seek you out, they give their life to you, give their life to Jesus Christ, and they'll never look back and they'll never regret it. We all know that, Lord, those of us that have been changed. We just thank you for your goodness. We thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.